tonight. I've had the privilege of spending the last half hour talking with Julie Sweet, and I'll just tell you, you are in for a treat. This is going to be uh, really a lot of fun. Um, my name is John Hamry. I'm the president of CSIS, and, and when we do public events, we always start with a little safety announcement, and so I'm going to be responsible for everybody tonight. You're going to, if something happens, I'd ask you to follow my directions. We'll hear a voice that'll say, please leave, or something. Uh, that's that door is going to be the one closest to the stairs that'll take us down to the street. We're going to take two left-hand turns and then a right-hand turn. We're going to go over to National Geographic. We have a mutual support thing with them. They've got a fabulous show on right now. It's about uh, the Titanic, the discovery of the Titanic. What people don't know is that uh, the discovery of the Titanic was actually a cover story for a secret mission. We had lost uh, a nuclear submarine. Uh, the Scorpion, and we didn't know what condition it was in, etc. So the, all of this underwater surveillance stuff was really to find the Scorpion, but we used Discovery of the Titanic as a cover story for it. It's a fascinating show. So if, if uh, something happens, we'll go over, I'll pay for the tickets. Uh, and if, if nothing happens, you go over on your own and buy your own ticket, okay? We, we, but it'll just be fun, you should enjoy it. Uh, we're really delighted to have all of you here tonight. And I, at this stage, I'd like to ask Candy Wolf to join. Candy is, is, of course, she's the Executive Vice President for Global Government Affairs for City, and has been a champion for this program for so many years. And I want to say thank you to you, Candy. Please come up here and offer some words of welcome to everybody. Thank you, Dr. Hamry. And thank you for joining us tonight in what will be another special event in our uh, series, uh, Smart Women, Smart Power. You know, City is and has been proud to bring together women leaders in foreign policy and national security and in our business community to convene a dialogue on many of the pressing issues that face our world today. And the discussion tonight will be a prime example um, with Julie around artificial intelligence, innovation in the workforce, which is certainly top of mind for so many of us. And at City, we're present in over 100 countries. I have to think about that because sometimes we mix up the numbers, but we really are present in more than 100 countries. And I think our unique global footprint is something that helps us offer a diverse perspective around economic and policy challenges, as well as opportunities uh, that we see around the globe. And so um, I think the discussion tonight around people and resources and AI and machine learning really highlight um, the interesting conversation that all of us are having, not only here in the US, but globally. Because if your financial services, for instance, that it, you know, we look at all of uh, the technology, while it has challenges, there's also opportunities to enhance the customer experience and certainly the services that we can provide our clients around the globe. So I'm excited uh, to hear the conversation. I wanna thank you all for taking the time to be with us tonight. It's a little drizzly outside, so we appreciate you being here. Uh, and thank you, Julie, for joining us. And Dr. Hamry?
this is the second event of the day where we're going to talk about artificial intelligence. Uh, I'm glad that Julie Sweet wasn't here for the first one, Andrew, because she said that you need to get a little more urgency in your, in your step about a very good report that Andrew produced. But we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. We're going to talk about, uh, about Accenture's uh, approach and very interesting, uh, very exciting ideas that they're working on. You all have her bio, so I would waste your time if I read it to you, but please take a look at it. An enormously talented individual, pure definition of smart woman, smart power. Welcome, please. Uh, well, I guess it's going to be you, Kath. You're going to lead it from this point, aren't you? I am. Okay, then I'm going to get off the stage. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you so much, Dr. Amory. So welcome everyone, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, just a couple reminders, we're taking questions tonight on note cards, so there should be a note card at your seat and we'll collect them later. And we're also taking uh, questions online. So uh, please, if you don't have a note card and want one, raise your hand, staff will bring them around. Also, a social media note, uh, we have a, of course, we have a handle, at Smart Women, and uh, hashtag CSIS Live. So uh, thanks for using those to track us. So artificial intelligence, we're gonna talk a little bit about leadership as well. Um, and your pathway to CEO of Accenture and to a leading voice in the business roundtable world on technology is not one people probably would expect. You're, you're not an engineer by training, you're a lawyer by training. Can you talk a little bit about the path that led you first to be CEO of Accenture, but also to being one of these leading voices on technology? Well, I'm, I'm still thinking about my introduction that started with Titanic. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I would say that while today people would say, uh, you know, being a lawyer is not necessarily a path to CEO, although there, there are some, um, some other great examples, I would say that the training of a lawyer today is never been more important mm -hmm. because if you think about what lawyers do, lawyers process enormous amounts of information and they have to make decisions. You can't say, well, it's you know, one hand or the other hand. You have to make decisions and help clients. If you look at what's happening today with um, the really epic disruption from technology, there's no such thing as a 10-year strategy, right? There's no such thing as knowing. You, you have to process and change and continuously learn and then make decisions really in the face of uncertainty. Artificial intelligence is a great example, right? We keep saying it's going to transform everything. Everything has to be reimagined, but by the way, we don't know exactly how, right? right. And so, um, you know, I really think about that path as, well, well maybe unconventional is, uh, maybe serendipitous that the exact skills that are needed actually are um, you know skills that are inherent really in the training. Well if you go even deeper in your past actually one of the big issues around AI right now which I do want to talk about is China and where China's going on AI um, and how we should think about the strategic challenge set. But before we get to that it turns out you have very deep experience understanding China and in fact in the 1980s when most Asianists might have been looking toward Japan you were actually studying Chinese. Can you talk a little bit about your uh, your interest in, in Asia and international relations? Yes, and so, you know, there's, I always think about life as being moments, right? So what are big moments? And I can, I can tell you a moment that changed my life. I was 17 and graduating from high school, and I'd won a scholarship from the Irvine Company. I grew up in Southern California. And uh, I went to the dinner that night, and I sat next to one of the members of the board, who happened to be a trustee as well at the college I was about to go to, Claremont McKenna, and he asked me what I was studying when I went to school. What well, you ask every graduating senior. 
And I said international relations, and he said what language? And I said, well, I studied French, but you know, I find it kind of boring. Uh, and he said three words that literally changed my life. He said, how about Chinese? Now, I'm 51, and this was in 1985, so you don't have to imagine the date, uh, the, the age. Uh, and at that time, if, and I grew up in Southern California, so if you left Southern California, which was a big <laughs> if, um, and didn't go to Europe, you certainly were not going to China, right? And in fact, I ended up spending a, my junior year abroad, I lived in Taiwan, it was still under martial law, and uh, when I would go to dinner on my own, I, my table would often be surrounded to watch me eat, you know, blonde, blue-eyed. And when I, then I went to Beijing, and this was a time when you literally would go to the stores and there would be someone in front of empty shelves. I mean, it was like, you know, everything you think about is hardcore communism and what it was like back then. So it's completely different now. And it was a really important time because it taught me a lot that I now use as a leader. First of all, empathy. You know, what is it like to be not like everyone else? And so at a time when I believe inclusion and diversity is critical to innovation, it's critical at this time in history for companies to truly be innovators, they need diverse viewpoints. I do believe my experience of being in China, in Taiwan, has really helped me understand how to be a more empathetic leader. Uh, but it also, of course, you know, as you look back, you know, gave me a, a viewpoint on a part of the world that was tremendous. And I, I ended up going back when I was um, a, a lawyer and as a partner and teaching at Beijing when I was brushing up on my Chinese. And, uh, and you know, it's just fascinating to see how much the country had changed and the students and how connected they were. So it's, it's been a, a, a really great ma um, shaping of myself um, as a leader. So coming forward to the artificial intelligence challenge at the strategic level, those of us in the security world, we hear constantly, as you pointed out, AI is changing everything, we don't know exactly how, and the next thing we hear often is, and China is essentially eating our lunch. How do you um, look today at how, where the US is, how that sits relatively, and how we ought to think about it just at this very broad strategic level? Well, I mean, I think the US still remains ahead. Um, in artificial intelligence and uh, in, in innovation. Uh, I do think, though, that that, um, that advantage is being threatened. And in part, it's because of the technology itself. I mean, I think what a lot of people don't understand is that artificial intelligence and much of what we talk about now has been around for a fair amount of time. It now has the ability to, because of the change in computing power and the availability of data, to actually have different results. But you could not have another innovation in the actual technology and just just implement it, which is really hard, by the way. But the but the implementation of it doesn't require new core, you know, breakthroughs. And so, if you think about the relative advantages of China and the U.S., right? The U.S. is phenomenal at core research and breakthroughs. China is phenomenal at implementation. They're also, they, I'm not saying they don't do research in right. that, but that's not the historical. Then you add to it that the fuel for artificial intelligence is data. And if you just start with the number of people in China, I mean, they have uh, in mobile payments. So, and of course, mobile payments, you know how, what people are purchasing and of all this internet. They have $17 trillion of mobile payments. It's larger than their GDP. It's 50 times bigger 
than mm -hmm. the US. That is all rich data mm -hmm. about how consumers buy, purchase what they care about, right? And, and I can go through, you know, fast food delivery, the use of, um, of you know, the equivalent of, of Uber and Didi there. So the data advantage on top of, you know, China's phenomenal and, and they've got a great entrepreneurial spirit uh, and, 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 and people. So you really have um, to think very much about natural advantages. Mm -hmm. And so today, I think we, we cannot be complacent in the way that we often were in the past about we'd say, oh, there's all these advantages, but we you know, somewhat put it back. And I think we, you couple that with a government that's been very clear that by 2030, they want to be the right. leader. And we simply don't have that same focus and I think that's one of the things that Andrew's um, report is so good on that there was just you know that you guys have just put out is it it's really a call to action right and for Accenture you know when you enter into this space how, how do you break down practically for a customer for people who are trying to understand what you do what AI means can mean should mean to them how, do you approach it as sort of this you know amorphous AI or is there more to the story well, I think, first of all, there's a lot of confusion about what AI is, and you, you quickly get to job disruption, which is really mostly about automation. And mm -hmm. so I often start with CEOs to talk about what we call the AAA, which is automation, analytics, and artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence is really a set of technologies that are self-learning, that do not require human beings to tell them. And that can, that's everything from visions of the video to natural language processing, Siri and Alexa, to machine learning, where you actually learn from large amounts of data. In fact, what's happening in the real world today right, is a combination of those things. So let's just take, um, you know, anybody here been on a cruise, right? So now we're working with a cruise, um, cruise line that wants to personalize your experience. So you feel like you are, have, have your own yacht with a, mm -hmm. your own personal staff because you're wearing uh, a medallion and it knows what you like and, and um, you've, it's got the data to understand where you are. Now, now layer on top of that as that's being implemented, uh, the learning from your actual purchases and getting more and more personalized. And that's possible today. So you've now got a whole new business model. You make people feel like they have their own personal concierge on what was a large ship with thousands of people. Now think about why is that example relevant to oil and gas? Well, the ship is mobile. If you're in the oil and gas business, you've got fleets of uh, trucks or ships, right? The ship has been, can, has been retrofitted with sensors to provide all the data about where you are and to provide you your personalized service wherever you show up. Those kinds of sensors you need in oil and gas to, so for safety, right? Do you know where people are? And then you've got to educate people and you have to provide the internet in the middle of the ocean, just like you have remote wells. And so today, industries are even converging in terms of, you know, a, the, what we're doing with a cruise line is just as relevant to an oil and gas company or an oil field services company, right? So the possibilities are tremendous, but when you're sitting here as a CEO and you're saying, well, okay, I hear all that, but where do I get started? It's pretty basic. First, is it a strategic priority and is there a return on investment? So all of this new technology is just that, right? Technology is not an outcome. Mm -hmm. So we don't throw out the, you know, the sort of business, the basic business elements. 
Many companies have because they said the new shiny toy, AI, blockchain, all of these different things. You start there. Right. Then the second is, do you have any right So just of, meaning yeah. like IT, HR, is that what you mean by b basic functionality or what do you mean by no, that? What I mean is that when someone comes to you and says, we want to do a pilot in, with artificial intelligence, the right. questions to ask are, is it a pilot that's in a strategic area? Right. And is there a return on investment? So I'll give you an, an example of um, automation, which is the lowest form of artificial mm -hmm. intelligence. Someone said, oh, we want to automate something that we do four times a year for 75 people in the HR thing. And we said, there is no return on that investment. Mm -hmm. It will cost a lot of money to redo the systems, to use cool automation. You can automate it, but there's no return on right. investment. Right? So, you know, as you sort of get started, you have to start with just the basics. Is it strategic? And is there a return? Today, much of what's happening that's, that's actually a material turn to create investment capacity is actually in IT, mm -hmm. it's in finance, uh, because you know, we all have computers. You can automate getting the ticket when your computer doesn't work, and then you can use artificial intelligence to do self-correcting. Self sure. Right? So that obviously creates, you know, lowers costs. Right. The power of artificial intelligence, though, will ultimately be really in growth, right? And what you can do to change your business models. That's where it's much more about experimentation today. You're at the yeah. very beginning of that growth curve. So a lot of folks talk about the implications, particularly, as you say, for automation on the workforce. And I, I'm going to get to that. But I want to start with the implications of what you just said for leadership which I know is something you've emphasized quite a bit. Um, what, what are the right, what are, who are the right leaders in that kind of environment? Well, it's a great question because it's, it's interesting how most people go directly to workforce transformation right. when it's really about right leaders. And that's the second question we have CEOs ask. And there's really three characteristics. We say innovation mindset, inspiring leaders, and responsible leaders. And what we mean by that is, the power of these technologies is in actually reimagining your business and doing something different. And so you have to have leaders who have an innovation mindset who are willing to say, I know we've done it this way, but could we do it differently? The second thing is they have to be inspiring. And this is a piece that many companies don't get right. And why do I say inspiring? If you're going to reimagine how you do things, if we're living in a world where you've got to continuously change and you have to have your skills changing, you have to have leaders who can inspire people to follow them, who have empathy to understand what the workforce is going to go through, right? Because you'll have cultural change, you have to have um, a skills change, and all of that requires leaders who actually understand people and people want to follow. And the third piece, which we call responsible leaders, is about responsible artificial intelligence. And that is leaders who are going to think about the ethics, right. the governance of it, um, the implications on the workforce. And that requires a leader that's a much more holistic thinker than many of the leaders, uh, you know, frankly, that companies you know, have today who've been using to, uh, you know, to operate, who are operators, or for whom that's somebody else's problem. Right. 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 And so for the workforce then, if you get the leader piece right, what are the big reskill, that's even the, the term you prefer, what's the, what are the big reskill challenges and how should we think about that even at a societal level? Well, it's, it's interesting. If you think about artificial intelligence, we think about it as augmenting humans. So mm -hmm. there are certain things that 
technology is much better at. Speed, processing huge amounts of data that an individual couldn't. But there are things that humans are much better at. Empathy, emotional intelligence, creativity, right? And then there are the things in the middle where you can put them together. So first of all, there's a whole set of jobs that are now being created, uh, which are brand new. And those are jobs that are not necessarily even four-year degrees. They're jobs to train artificial intelligence. So artificial intelligence are algorithms, and they have to be sure. trained by data. And if you think about it, you know, calling Alexa and Siri, they have different personalities, right? So if you just think about the customer experience, as a company, you have to decide, what do you want your digital, your virtual agent to be like? Wait, well, those are people who have to be trained. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole set of jobs that are being created now. We don't have enough people just to actually be able to have artificial intelligence, in fact, reimagine and, and business. On top of that, though, is because the AAA, so if you put it all together, is going to eliminate jobs, right? It is, it is inevitable. It is going to create jobs as well, but they're different jobs. Right. And so one of the things that we really work with companies to, to address is when there's going to be workforce disruption, do you have people who could be upskilled? In other words, can you reinvest some of your savings to retrain them? At Accenture, over a two-year period, we automated 20,000 jobs. Mm -hmm. We reinvested 60% of the savings, and we reskilled those individuals to do higher-level jobs like analytics. And so we, we in, in our case, we were a growing business. Those were hard skills to find, and we had a strategy up front. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most important things that companies and boards have to do is to say, it's not an option to not deploy these technologies, right? For many companies who take insurance, um, many insurance companies have lots of employees in the community, but they're being disrupted by complete online who don't have to deal with legacy workforces. So they're going to be deploying these technologies. Right. So you can't simply say, I'm not going to because it'll cut jobs. But what you do have to say is, what is our strategy, right? And how many people could be actually um, upskilled? What will that cost, putting it in the business case? and then. Some of them will not be able to, or can't, you can't afford to. And then what's the strategy to partner? And this is where the public-private sector partnership is so important. And we can talk about you know, apprenticeships, which is something that we're working on, right. exactly because we believe as a country, we have to have different levers to retrain people, particularly white collar. Can you talk a little bit about an example of one of those um, apprenticeship programs that you think has succeeded or is helping? So, so we actually, today, um, this year, we will have 150 apprenticeships, uh, mostly in IT. And we started this three years ago, and we said, you know, we have a program called Skills to Succeed, which is um, providing skills to get a job or, um, or to start a business. And we, and we really wanted to switch to say, how can we be more inclusive in terms of bringing more people into the digital economy? And we said, let's try apprenticeships. And we started very small. And, uh, and, and it's been very successful. And we take, uh, in Chicago, we started there with eight apprenticeships three years ago. We partnered with the community college, Wright Community College, mm -hmm. helped their curriculum, and we brought them into our IT department. And every large company has an IT department, right? right? And, and, and they've been extremely successful, and we're now growing that, and we're now doing it at client sites. So last year, Greg Case is the CEO of Aon. They have a, a program with the community college around actuarial, their insur insurance. And we got together, and we said, we sh this, is, this is really, um, 
exciting for the country. Apprenticeships for white-collar professional jobs. It's different, right? right? It's different than the traditional. And we created the Chicago Apprenticeship Network, which now has 14 companies. It's uh, got 300 apprentices in, that were created in the last year. We're committing to 1,000 more by the end of 2020. Um, we at Accenture will have 300 next year mm -hmm. on top of what we have. And we believe that from a U.S. competitiveness perspective, as you look at disruption, if we can create a foundation for apprenticeships, it'll be a great way to help mid-career reskilling as technology continues to disrupt uh, jobs. And the what's the public sector role in that? The support to the community college? How does it play? It's a couple of places. So it's the there's the academic, so there's the community college. Sure. And then many of the programs, like our program, does focus on under underrepresented communities. Mm -hmm. Many of the students, for example, you know, don't come from families and have never worked in professional environments. So we work for, with not-for-profits who provide support and help some. Um, and some of our training that we provide is on soft skills as well. Because what we're trying to do is to make sure that we have an inclusive innovation economy and many of the um, companies who are creating apprenticeships have those same goals. And so, uh, and then in addition to that, in some, in some states, they also are providing you know, credits and tax credits, which right. particularly for medium and small size companies are really important. Yeah. Um, and so there is a role for you know, providing incentives as well. So the, the other thing you hear a lot about AI as a concern is around security and privacy. Those are slightly different things, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit about where your concern lies or, and if there are ways that you think you know, there, we're making headway and mitigating those concerns on both the security side of AI and the privacy concerns of those cruise ship you know, uh, 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 cruisers who are, who are worried, if you will, about giving over their data. Well, if you look globally, I mean, the U.S. is behind uh, with respect to uh, really addressing data privacy. Right? We do not have a national law like the GDPR in Europe, like what Brazil has done. And uh, we're really quite actually, not only do we not have it, but we're at risk of falling behind as a country from a competitiveness perspective because we're at risk of further fragmenting. There are, um, right now, in the, in the U.S., there are more than 24 states that are looking at different types of data privacy legislation. Right. Now, just imagine if we have completely fragmented. Right. So, um, as a country, from a competitiveness perspective, and also we need, if we're going to continue down, which we are, it's inevitable. We need to protect consumers, and uh, and so we really, at Accenture, believe that we need a, we need a um, national law, and we're doing some work. Um, at the Business Roundtable and other places with respect to that. Uh, with respect to security, it's interesting. Artificial intelligence, of course, is tailor-made to improve security because it, compute, it looks at large amounts of data. It does great pattern detection. And so you know, if you look at startups and you look at technology uh, that, that is being deployed to make you more secure, it all involves artificial intelligence. The, Problem is, of course, that just as it is great to do protecting it, you know, in the hands of the bad guys, it's, it helps you know identify the vulnerabilities, right? right? And so, uh, I think understanding the two-sided nature of artificial intelligence uh, is really important, and uh, and that's you know we spend a lot of time focusing on that. So we use it to help make us more secure, but we also recognize you know putting ourselves into the sort of the opposite in, into the bad guys. Um, uh, you know, shoes is how it can, you know, it can also harm us. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about um, 
leadership. You've, 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 the theme has, is, I think, quite naturally for you woven through everything you've already said, because I think that's, that's where your heart is, and is in leadership. Um, can you talk a little bit about what has molded you, you think, most as a leader? You mentioned before empathy. You mentioned the idea of being agile and innovative as things that you prize. Um, do you think those are hallmarks that you strive for yourself? And how, do you, how have you shaped sort of the leadership persona that you would like to emulate? Well, I mean, I, I, look, I think as a leader that we need to serve, right? And, uh, and that really comes from how I grew up. I mean, I, I am living the American dream, right? So my father painted cars for a living. My mom and dad worked hard and said my mom should go to college. Uh, my father you know, got, uh, didn't graduate from high school. Uh, so she graduated as I was uh, entering college. And I grew up with parents. I remember they, uh, they would help, they volunteer at the church because my, my parents used to say, and, you know, we may not have money, but we have time. Mm. And uh, I still remember when they, they had $500 in the bank and they were volunteering and they met this young couple who he'd gotten in some legal trouble and they were worried about him having a public defender and they took literally their only $500, like that was their entire mm. life savings to help this young man. And, uh, and so if you really, if I say there's a lot, I've, I've been so blessed by great mentors in that, but I go back to, um, we live in a great country, right? The fact that I'm the CEO of a $17 billion business and um, am able to do what I'm able to do in this country, starting from you know, our background and where we started is amazing. And my parents were just model um, you know, people who gave to others. Yeah, and you also had a significant health crisis uh, in your mid-40s, deep into your career. You were a partner already in your firm and you were close to being CEO, as I recall, if I've got the timeline right. Um, how did that affect everything in your, in your life? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, so I, uh, so I, was, I was general counsel of Accenture at the time. I joined mm -hmm. Accenture eight years ago. Right. And uh, I'd just been to Davos, the World Economic Forum, for the second uh, year in a row. And you know, I, was on, I was part of the, you know, wow, the, I'm the part the of the elite. elite. I'm right. the global elite. We're solving world problems. And I remember I came back. And that week I went to get my mammogram and I found out I had breast cancer. So that will bring you down to, you know, to real life pretty quickly. And I was uh, 46 at the time with two small children. My daughters are now are 10 and 12. And uh, so this was in 2014. But, uh, uh, and you know, one of the things that was great for me is that, it, you know, it's a time of contemplation. And so I really thought a lot about my life. And the good news was that I, I said I didn't have any regrets. I felt mm. like I'd made the right choices. They weren't the choices for all people. They, not everyone would, would choose how I choose to live my life, but for me, they were um, the right choices. And so I, I was out for several months, and when I came back, six months later, I became CEO. So um, I have an amazing company, and it, they did not let it uh, cause me to miss a beat in terms of uh, my you know career. Uh, but one of the things I do now is, I use that test, right? So, you know, being CEO, I travel a lot. I'm very busy. I thought general counsel was, but this is a much bigger <laughs> job. And, and I will ask myself, you know, if tomorrow I had a health issue, would I still be able to say I have no regrets? And it's a great way of keeping yourself grounded and focused. And, and sometimes the answer is, no, I wouldn't be able to say that. And then mm -hmm. I can calibrate and, and make sure that I'm focusing 
um, the things that are both important to me and my family personally, but also the things at work that are important. Right. And one of those things that you've made very important for you is diversity and inclusion. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach that issue set, which can, particularly right now in, in, in America, can feel very uh, ripe for, for conflict. How do you bring an issue like that to the forefront, a priority for you as a CEO, um, and bring people along in common cause toward it? Well, first of all, we as a company, from our board down, really believe that inclusion and diversity is not only the right thing to do, but it's also critical. We want to be an innovation-led company. And so we believe it's also critical to our business. And we treat it like a business priority. So we set goals. We hold leaderships accountable. Leadership accountable, um, you know, we look at the data. In fact, we have set a global goal to have gender parity by 2025 globally. We've set a goal in the U.S. to be at 40% women um, in uh, by 2020, and uh, and so we and we've been on this journey for a while. We're, we're very proud that this year the Thomson Reuters Diversity Inclusion Index, which is a global index, we were number one on inclusion and diversity. Now I say that I'm very, we're very proud of that, but we have a long way to go. And uh, one of the things we're very focused on is inclusion. Mm -hmm. um, and so the diversity piece of attracting the right people and retaining is very important. But how does it feel at work? You know, and in the U.S., where we have the broadest range of diversity, we think this is particularly important. And you know, just uh, just last week, uh, we held what we call we have a program called Building Bridges, and it's how do you have dialogues about important issues at work around diversity? And it started actually in 2016. You may remember that terrible week where two African Americans were killed by police officers, and then there was the ambush of the police officers in Dallas um, where nine were killed. And that was the first time as a company we decided that we, we, we could no longer not talk about race at mm -hmm. work. And probably the, one of the most um, difficult moments of my career is we, I decided, I not only sent out a note, that, but I decided we were gonna have a national webcast about race. Not diversity, mm -hmm. but race. And you know, the night before, I was quite nervous. No one had ever done this. And not everybody was sure this was the right answer. And for us, it's, it was a complete turning point. Because uh, first of all, we had our African-American community, I remember one young man saying, you know, coming to work, like the silence was deafening. Right. right? And so we started that. And it, it's become something we call building bridges, which is talking about these issues at work so that people can feel inclusive. So last Friday we had one on anti-Semitism and uh, because of you know, the terrible tragedy um, in Pittsburgh. And when that tragedy happened, I sent a note out to the entire community and I talked about not just about the synagogue, but, um, but also, you know, there's, you know, we've had the, the mosque in, in, in uh, Wisconsin that mm -hmm. was uh, bombed. We had the Charleston church. We had a Sikh um, Gurdhara. So really inclusive, right? But um, having that, and, and that has been very important to us. And then finally, it is about transparency. So we became the first professional services company uh, two years ago to put all of our numbers out around um, race, gender, persons with disabilities, and veterans, and we update it annually. And the reason that's important is because, first of all, transparency creates trust. Right. Our numbers were not great, but people believe we're serious when you're willing to share it. But the second thing is, if you're asking people to change, 
to spend time to understand, to make a more inclusive, to take the time to not just hire from the people you know in your network. Doing so without saying, here's where we are, right? And being transparent, right? Didn't feel authentic. Mm -hmm. And it has, I believe, as we look back at it, our transparency has been critical in really changing how people are embracing and making this a part of their own accountability, not because I say it, but because they believe it. Mm -hmm. are, there, are there pitfalls that you hit along the way that are worth sharing in terms of as people think ahead to their own companies and how they, how they do this the right way versus the wrong way? You know, so I what were some um, learning steps? And, and we'll take cards too, yeah, by the way. You get what you ask for, and I, I, will, I will tell you, when I first became CEO, I was having a conversation with someone, it was about an African-American managing director who I felt this particular leader was not adequately supporting. And I remember the leader said, well, Julie, I'm, I'm really good on gender. That's what, you asked, that's what I've been asked to do. I, I really wasn't focused on this. And it was such an important lesson, right? Right. And, and as a leader, like, what you focus on your people focus on. Yeah. And believe me, every place I went that year, I was extraordinarily clear about what we were focused on and what diversity yeah. at Accenture means. And so, yes, we had goals around gender, but diversity was not limited to, to gender. gender. Right. And how do you make the case, you, you, you mentioned it as a given, but can you talk a little bit about how you make the case for why diversity is so important to an innovative company and innovation economy? Well, there. I will say there, there are good studies out there that show financial performance um, improves when you have a diverse, this is focused on gender in particular, um, and there's good studies that say you have a higher percentage of innovation revenue when you have a gender diverse um, leadership team. Frankly, that's not enough though, mm -hmm. and I will tell you, we, we just put out, um, I chair the U.S. Canadian Council on the Advancement of Women, and we just put out a study that is not positive. Hmm. about uh, that basically says the you know highest external commitment to gender diversity and yet we have companies who are not tracking basic data right and in the so you say to yourself well how is it possible to have very clear data that says you know companies perform better and yet lots of companies big small and medium not doing basic things like having data on whether they're paying people equal or whether there's attrition differences and I think that goes to making the case. At Accenture, we see it every day because we're an innovation-led company and you do not get the best ideas when the team looks the same, whichever the team is. You, you have to have diversity. We hear it from our clients who will say to us, you know, I remember one CIO said, you know, she, she was kind of laughing. She goes, I'm the only woman on the leadership team and it's all white males, but when your competitor came in with an all white male team, they said, oh, we can't hire them. This is really innovative work. And she said, they didn't quite get the irony of that. She yes. goes, but they understood that when they're doing groundbreaking work, they need diversity. And you came in with a diverse team, right? Yeah. So we hear it from right. our clients. And we see it um, in the work that, that we're doing. Uh, you know, 60% of our work last year was digital cloud and security. And you know, our commitment in doubling down on diversity 
came at the same time as our strategy around being an innovation-led company. So um, through your significant role on this issue set, you had opportunity to uh, sit down with President Trump, Prime Minister Trudeau, and talk a little bit about women's empowerment and innovation. Can you tell us a little, maybe a little backstory about how that all developed? Um, and then what, what you took from that conversation in terms of where, where we could be headed in North America on these issues. Sure. In fact, I was just with Prime Minister Trudeau at the Fortune Global Forum and had dinner um, at his house. And he was, uh, was impressed at how much he would actually followed the council's work, which is the council is independent of the two governments, but we were asked to be formed by them. Um, but uh, And it was really formed at the time uh, President Trump had just been in office and um, Prime Minister Trudeau um, had come and he was, of course, famous for his commitment to diversity and his um, leadership team being 50-50. And, uh, uh, both leaders really felt that there is a competitive advantage to our economies to um, having to making sure that more women are participating. And so our council focused both on entrepreneurs as well as advancing women leaders. And, and the idea was to learn from each other. And you know, it's fascinating because we really did. I mean, for example, one of the things my Canadian counterparts would say that they didn't realize was how effective and ubiquitous in large companies in the US are supplier diversity programs. And so in, in the US, we, we have, you know, if you look at Accenture, $2 billion in spend, and 30% of it goes to women, minority, and veteran-owned hmm. companies. This is standard for most, you know, certainly Fortune 100 and, and you know, probably most Fortune 500 companies as well. Right. And in Canada, it, it is barely exists other than companies like Accenture, which, you know, we do it globally. Mm -hmm. And it was a great example of how do you, you know, bring women from you know different sectors together and uh and learning from each other and we and that was in one of our reports yeah that's amazing um we'll take the cards bev when you're ready here i know we have some questions from our audience which will i'm sure necessitate these reading glasses okay let's start here and whoever used cursive Boy, oh boy. AI is arguably being used to damage democracy. For instance, the Big Brother system being deployed in China, the, the social rating system, um, et cetera. How can Accenture or companies like it um, fight that use of AI and be a force for good in those kinds of challenges? I think it's a great question. I mean, first of all, we have to have responsible AI. And that starts with companies and how they approach it, but also um, governments, right? And so the discussion around AI has to include what is responsible AI. How do you make sure bias isn't in there? Um, how do you make sure that the use of it is, is good? So, I, you know, it really goes to, in my mind, both companies starting there, but also governments talking about it. Yeah. Um, okay, we, we had a couple along those lines, but um, let's talk a little bit about the skills side um, that AI won't replace, empathy, communication, et cetera. Uh, someone in the audience notes, these are things that women are actually considered to be particularly good at. Um, will women have an advantage uh, in the AI revolution? That's an interesting tying together of some themes. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I, get, I actually get asked this a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I, you know, I think I, I do think women have um, an advantage to the extent that um, uh, women often are seen and, and in fact are more collaborative and I will tell you that the thing we see at Accenture all the time is you know if you take artificial intelligence most of it is not something today that's a, sh a solution right it's being 
we call co-innovated with our clients, which means you're taking lots of different people together. And so people who work, men or women, collaboratively um, and, and teams, which requires, by the way, better social skills and empathy and how to do it, are going to be much more successful going forward. We also had a question on how much cooperation is really happening among Fortune 500 companies, or however you want to define it, um, about how to incorporate AI, how much sharing of information and common practices there in, in business strategy and operations? I would say not a lot. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, it's competitive, frankly. Um, there's, some, there's some places where companies are coming together to say, you know, where they don't want to invest necessarily independently, but I'd say that's not the norm. Interesting. Why, and because it's competitive. Yes. Yeah. Um, is there anything on the public policy side that would shift that? Well, I think, um, so one big area that I think we have to think about, so the flip side to having a national, you know, law is you, you need a national data privacy law. But if, is, if you think of the issue, particularly around China, with data and lack of re less regulation there, mm -hmm. to compete both by just the sheer size of the population, right, there's, there needs to be more sharing of data. Because at the end of the day, artificial intelligence you know, is, is successful by the more data that you have. And so I do believe that there is a opportunity for the public private sector to cooperate mm -hmm. on how do we find a And that fits with what you've described, you will, as a very practical, concrete ways in which we're having change through AI. Are there, are there, can you foresee major strategic approaches, whether it's companies or governments, where AI you know, isn't just a, a pipe dream of how it might change things, but where we're actually going in potential. I mean, look, today, right, so there's an estimate that 759 million people are go hungry today. In the next um, 50 years, there's going to be more food that was needed in the last 10,000 mm -hmm. years, right? Literally today, there are solutions using artificial intelligence, which are taking data um, external data, weather data, usually using drones, looking at that to make recommendations on how to, you know, um, uh, to change, you know, things to, to either farmers or their for larger um, their their um, managers uh, that are increasing the yield and decreasing waste and pesticides. Right. So that is a very clear societal problem. Um, Any money laundering. There's three trillion dollars of illicit funds today less than 1% are frozen and found through fraud hmm. um, and compliance today, despite the fact that almost $300 billion is spent yeah, a year. Amazing. We are working right now with banks, you know, also with regulators who have to approve it, to um, use artificial intelligence to decrease what are false positives. So you have tons of people spending all this time following false, hmm. you know, false positives and not spending enough time on the real stuff. That is real today, and we'll go after it. Yeah, right. those, those are great examples. One person asking about um, whether it's problematic to think about responsible AI being primarily or starting with companies and then extending to government. Shouldn't the question being, should the, shouldn't the government be leading on AI innovation and policy? And if it's not, then how does it catch up? What, what, are, the, what are the key factors for how it can catch up? I think there's been a paradigm shift. I mean, you saw it in cyber first, right? In cyber, who's the front line of defense? It is the private sector, right? Right. Um, here, I think what I would call is is the same way. Is, I would call it co-innovation, right? Because 
uh, first of all, there's a lot of un unknowns, right? And it's hard enough in the private sector to get the talent. It's really difficult right. in the government sector, right? And so I really think it has to be done together. And uh, you take facial recognition, for example. Like, there aren't laws today that really work for facial recognition. There is going to have to be some kind of, of regulation around that um, appropriately, right? Mm -hmm. But how to do that is really something to do together with the private sector. And so I don't think it's a question of who should lead. I think it's a question of determining where you should regulate, what's the appropriate role for government, and then how do we help each other? You know, mm -hmm. how does the private sector and the government work together to get it right? Are you finding a, a much uh, reaching out from the public sector to companies like you, you, you CEOs like yourself, um, to try to understand and manage through this period? Um, or is it is it too diffuse for that right now? Where are we on that? No, it's, it's happening around the world. I would say that I think despite lots of dialogue mm -hmm. in the U.S., the U.S. is behind other countries, and I'm not just talking about China, right. you know, in Europe, for example, where there's a much clearer innovation agenda, right. they're picking priorities. I mean, today, from a U.S. perspective, if we would say there's five areas that we want to, you know, to really win. We want to be the collaborative robotics for manufacturing because we want to own manufacturing. We want to bring it back to the U.S., right? And we're going to do. We're going to win there. We're going to, you know, you pick the five areas mm -hmm. and then you say, the government's got a role in funding some of it. The private sector does, academia, and you line it up, we would be so much more effective. And that is what other countries mm. are doing. And do you think the private sector, to turn that around, is what you've just expressed is a, is a shared perspective, if you will, that will create momentum to get the government sector awakened and maybe the electorate or pu public awakened to that I think uh, point? Or are we going to hit, frankly, a crisis because there isn't that sense of urgency around these issues. I think there's a growing sense of urgency. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I do believe that companies, and I know the work at the Business Roundtable that we're doing, I chair the technology committee there, is very focused on exactly these topics. I do think we need all of us more of a sense of urgency. It is very countercultural, right? And, uh, and so, um, you know, at the same time, I think there's, a widespread recognition of mm -hmm. the need. Mm -hmm. So what's so we, we talked a lot about AI tonight. As you said yourself, it has many manifestations. People often think of the the alligator closest to the boat being the automation piece in manufacturing. Um, can you jump ahead for us as CEO? Obviously, you're thinking you're thinking out over the long term. Um, where do you think you are going on technology and integrating new approaches into Accenture and your offerings? How are, how are you thinking about that? So one of the ways um, you know that we really think about it is we become an innovation-led company with an innovation strategy. So really, five years ago, we said. You know, our core business is declining, and so we're going to invest there to grow it while we scale the new. And they said, so what's the new? And we defined it as digital cloud and security, and that was less than 20% of our business at the mm -hmm. time. But we said, at all times, we're going to scale the new. We need to be looking to the future. So we created, we said, this is going to be the new. We're going to have the 
um, the new new, so what will come next, and then the next new. So at the time, the new new was artificial intelligence mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in what, the Internet of Things, and the next new was blockchain uh, and augmented reality. Mm -hmm. So fast forward five years, we're now 60% digital cloud and security, so that's become the core. Mm -hmm. We last year then took what was the new, new artificial intelligence. That had come, we'd incubated, it's now big. It's now the new, new that we're, now, it's now the new that we're scaling. Right. And we've, blockchain and, and um, augmented reality have been moved forward in terms of investment. And now quantum computing is the mm. next future. So we have a very disciplined way of yep. looking at our business. And this is what many companies are now striving for. And mm -hmm. this is this idea of continuous innovation, right? And it takes a disciplined capital allocation, but also the willingness to say, what is really happening with our core business? What do we have to do while we scale the new? And then being really relentlessly focused on right. it. And, and all the while, you, you had mentioned to me when we had talked before coming out here, uh, that you all have what, what I assume is an industry approach. You have a lot of turnover. You're turning over senior people throughout that as you as you you know change. So, what's the strategy for in a change you know economy where you're trying to innovate and have tech? How do you think about the human capital piece of it and growing and and retaining the kind of talent that you want that's appropriate to that? Well, I think there's two pieces. You have to have the right leaders, yep. right? And so we were a company that, when I joined eight years ago, used to say very proudly, we are fast followers. Mm -hmm. That is a certain kind of leader, <laughs> yes. right? So when we <laughs> switched and said, we're going to rotate to the new, we're going to become an innovation-led company, we had to redefine what yeah. leadership is. And so we needed leaders who were not operators, that the, the metric wasn't how many people and how big your P&L was, but you know, what were the growth opportunities? Yep. Are you comfortable? with ambiguity um, are you a smart risk taker so if you don't have the right leaders the rest is not going to come you're not going to innovate unless you have leaders with an innovation mindset so we started very much and we had a major rotation of our leaders some retired and some into new roles mm -hmm. and that was important then you have to look at the workforce we had to make a pivot to say we are really going to be a company with continuous learning we're rotating to these new areas where we can't go hire everyone. We have to reskill. Mm -hmm. But we used to do either fly everybody someplace, and that was really expensive, and that was sort of a one and done. You're going to go to training once every three That's years. Right. Yeah. Not viable yeah. in today's um, world. Or really bad computer-based training. Right. So we had to create. You know, I think we've all had right, some of that in our lives. Right. So we had to create a totally different kind of training. So we, we we created something called digital learning boards that is curated content. They're everything from you know seven minutes to an hour. They're external and internal. In the last two years, we have now four hundred and sixty thousand people. But in the last two years. 22 million discrete learning activities mm. have occurred on these learning boards, right? So we yeah. have changed our culture. They're not mandated, right? But we've changed the culture with the leaders because they model it. I talk about, I have a quarterly learning program and I talk about it wherever I go. I said every quarter I set my objectives. What am I gonna learn this quarter? I am the CEO and I have to do that. Mm -hmm. And then I ask everyone, I said, if you have anybody working for you 
then every quarter you need to have set up some kind of a training. We have lots of it. If not, you are not fulfilling your obligations as a leader right. to your people. Yeah, right? that's fantastic. So that cultural change, yeah. so change your leaders, focus on your workforce. But if you just say go learn and you don't provide the tools, that's not going to help either. Yeah. Julie Sweet, an amazing um, conversation. Um, thank you so much for your time today and for the leadership that you're giving in innovation and to women. So please join me in a thank round of applause. Thanks for having me.